city. morning. If you have Bibles or if you want to take one of those in the pew in front of you and turn to page 810, we're going to be in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament in chapter 5. Today talking about the, the idea of how does God view work. Chip just finished a series on Psalm 73 and we'll be starting something new next week. But since it's Labor Day, decided to stop and pause and Take a look at what the scriptures have to say about how God views work. I did a little bit of digging on the internet to find out a little bit about the history of Labor Day. And historically, one of the things that was done on Labor Day weekend was that the church would pause and have a Sunday dedicated to teaching what God had to say about work as as something that's vital to his plan of redemption. So that's what we'll do today. Let me read for us as our main text. We'll look at a lot of other ones, but Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, Jesus has started his Sermon on the Mount, a message to his disciples. Others are, have gathered around and are listening, but he's speaking mainly to followers, and he's just finished describing uh, what we call the Beatitudes, which are the characteristics of what a follower, what a disciple looks like. And he goes straight in that where he's described, hey, a true disciple is one who is empty of himself, and is depending upon the Lord for everything, who knows that they have nothing to bring to the table in and of themselves, but are looking to the Lord for not only salvation, but strength to live as a disciple. And then he goes into verse 13, he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray one more time. God, would you bless the preaching now of your word. God, you know my weaknesses, especially today, this weekend. Pray that you would use me in spite of my weaknesses, that you're... Your word would go forth and not come back empty. Your spirit would be at work applying it to our lives and changing us. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. I've been a homeowner for a little over five years. And in those five years' time, there have been many, many repairs. Even in the last year, um, when... Our youngest, Samuel, we were in the hospital with him just being born. We lost a hot water heater and a, and a furnace. Uh, soon, a few months after that, downstairs air condition went out for the second time in two years. Um, not too long after that, we had problems with our washing machine, which through YouTube videos I, I, I was able to fix. And then recently, last night, after uh, being able to enjoy and take part in a wedding and visit a new a new member in the hospital, a new baby that was born. I got home and kicked up my feet and heard a water pipe burst under the house. Um, so I haven't taken a shower this morning, so don't get too close. <laughs> I used to think, and the reason I share that with you is not to complain. 
but to, know, to share it with you because I know you know what I'm talking about. That's the joy and the responsibility of home ownership. There's always something that needs to be fixed, something breaking. It's the nature of houses. They wear out. Appliances break um, and need to be fixed. They need us to, to be homeowners and do what homeowners do, repair, fix, upkeep, continue to invest our time and our money and our, our resources in them to keep them being a house that we can live in. And when I'm not complaining or grumbling, and I'm able to step back from those situations and look, a lot of times those day-to-day life situations end up being pointers to much bigger spiritual lessons that the Lord is trying to teach me. And one thing that I've learned in the last few years is that just like we live in broken-down houses that need renovation and constant restoration and attention, Our world is a broken down world. But it's not one that God, God's not a God that just gets the bulldozer and and mows it over and starts over. He's a God of renovation, a God of restoration who gets down and dirty, gets his hands dirty with the work of redeeming, of restoring, of renovating. And that if our God is like that, if that's what he's about, then how much more should we be about that? Um, being about the work of our Creator. That's what I want to talk to us about this morning for just a few minutes. That our God reigns, and He reigns through us as He reigns in us. I just want to take that phrase. God reigns in us as He works and reigns in us. Uh, and just unpack that phrase um, for us and learn what we can about the idea of how God views our work, our labor in the public arena. The first thing is this. God reigns. God reigns even over the workplace. Um, First of all, God created it. Work is God's idea. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that uh, we have a picture, a first picture of the biblical God as a worker. He's thinking, he's choosing, he's planning, he's executing, he's evaluating. And so when God decides to create humans in the image of, him, of, of himself, of God, what else would humans be but workers? Reflecting in their working lives something of the nature of their creator. Work matters because it's God's intention for us. It's what God had in mind when he made us. It's, it's our part in his creation. One commentator even views Adam pre, pre-fall, pre-sin, pre the, before the curse as waking up one morning and looking around his, uh, the tree that he'd been sleeping under, and maybe it's autumn and the leaves have started falling. And he starts to rake the leaves away with his hand, and Eve turns to him and says, why don't you use that stick over there? It's got some limbs going out. I might help you, uh, you know, get the leaves out of the way. So he picks it up and starts moving the leaves out of the way and says, hey, this is, this is handy. Actually, I think I could modify it a little bit and, and it'd do an even better job. And therefore he says, you know what? I'm going to call this a rake. And all of a sudden, he's created the first cultural artifact. See, even before the fall, the point of that author was that our intent, God's intent for us, was to be creators and cultivators of his good creation, to take what was good, the raw materials of the garden, and to develop them, to cultivate them so that they scream of his glory. That's what we're to do in work. Work is God's idea. He created it. Secondly, God audits it. My dad, who's with us today, is a, is a CPA, and part of his job is to be an auditor. What is an auditor? An auditor provides independent 
impartial, hopefully, and objective scrutiny of a company's activities and claims. Well, according to the Bible, God, too, is an auditor. He is a judge of all that goes on in the public square. And you read it especially in the prophets. You read a prophet like Amos, who probably surprised his listeners by insisting that God was just as interested in what was going on in the gate, in the public square, as he was what was going on in the sanctuary. He says what God demands, as any auditor should, is complete integrity and transparency. And when he sees injustice taking place in that public square, he acts on behalf of those that have been disenfranchised. So God created work, but then he audits it as well. And thirdly, God governs it. The Bible affirms both the truth that humans are morally responsible for our choices and actions and the consequences that accompany those, but it also retains God's sovereign control over the final outcomes and destinies. If you were to read the story of Joseph, you see that despite all the things that happened to poor old Joseph throughout his his long life, at the end of it, when his brothers come and, and kneel before him and he has a chance to get even, he chooses instead to forgive and he says this. This is his reasoning. You meant it for evil, but what? God meant it for good. He's saying, hey, you thought that you were in control of all these things, getting me thrown into a pit and sold into slavery and all that's happened since then. But God was sovereign, in control, and now looking back over his long life, which I'm sure he didn't see it in the midst of it all the time, but he was faithful instead. He says, I see now God had been governing my work, my faithful labor, and he's been using it for his glory. And finally... It's not only God's idea, not only He created it, not only does He audit it, not only does He govern it, but God redeems it. And this is the most powerful idea of Scripture in the realm of work to me, is that God redeems our work. He uses our work. Um, A common Christian assumption is that all that happens here on earth is nothing more than temporary and transient, and that human history is nothing more than the vestibule for eternity, the waiting room. So it doesn't matter what we do here. We just got to eat by and try to save as many people as possible and then we'll all go to heaven. When the scripture lays out something very different, it shows God's plan to redeem all that he has made. And included with that will be the redemption of all that we have made that brings God glory. There'll be some lasting fruit to our work. Now, it won't all enter eternity as it is. God promises to purge and take all the sin so that only what is, is glorifying him will remain. But he says there's some eternal uh, fruit, some lastingness to our day-to-day work. He's not going to obliterate. He's going to restore and renew creation. Isaiah 65 paints a beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth where uh, whole of life, personal, family, public will be redeemed and restored to God-glorifying productiveness. Isaiah 60 shows the ships of Tarshish and other cultural artifacts of of the day that were used for the glory of man and for sinful purposes being purged and redeemed and renewed and now speeding God's children into the city of God at the opening ceremonies of the new heaven and the new earth. It's a beautiful picture of God saying, hey, I'm not going to just obliterate all these things. I I love creation. I made it. I want to dwell with you there. I'm going to restore it and redeem it and then I'm going to come live in your midst as I've always um, wanted to and planned on. Revelation 21 is that picture again, the renewed heavens, the new earth. 
the picture of kings coming and presenting the, what's representative, the best thing that their cultures have to offer and laying it at the feet of God saying, you're the rightful author and owner of this. It's yours. You're, you're the one that we present it to and lay before. And with such a hope, we can follow Paul's command to always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's saying, listen, not that you know your work is, is not in vain because you're able to um, hopefully slip a track to somebody. Though evangelism should take place, what he's saying is the, your work itself has value in the sight of God. What you set your hands to eight hours a day for five days a week or more has value to God. And you can do your work in such a way that it has eternal weight and significance in the eyes of the Lord. And that he'll redeem it. God reigns. And he reigns even in the area of the public square over our work. So where does that leave us? What what does it mean our role in work is? Well, God reigns and he reigns through us. See, God not only ordains the ends of where things are going, but he ordains the means of, of how he gets there. And so we are to engage in the public square in work, but we're to do it in a specific way. And that's where our passage today comes in, where Jesus says, you are salt and light. Now the thing about salt and light is that it's got to be out there um, to, to, to be of any effect he says you can't hide it under a, a, a bushel. You, 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 if it's lost its saltiness, it's no good. You've got to be out there, engaged in the public square. And you see it in the Old Testament in beautiful ways of characters over and over um, that, that, that draw it out. You see it in people like Daniel and his three friends who accept a massive degree of a cultural adjustment before they, they draw the line and say, I'm not going to go any further. They they receive Babylonian names, Babylonian education. They learn the language. They take jobs uh, in, in Babylon. You see Joseph, who was so immersed in, his, in the Egyptian culture that his brothers didn't even recognize him. He evidently spoke enough Egyptian fluently enough that they didn't say, hey, wait a second, I, I detect a Hebrew accent there. And Esther, who was forced into a cultural practice that was extremely distasteful, she was forced to do it, uh, but yet she, she ended up redeeming it and using it for the Lord. These characters work constructively and conscientiously for the government. You've, you've got to imagine that for the ordinary Babylonian, life was better when Daniel and his friends were in charge because he was such a good manager of, of the resources. Joseph saves the lives of many Egyptians by his wise administration. And yet, in the midst of all that engagement, they preserve their integrity. For Joseph, it was his moral integrity. When Potiphar's wife makes advances, he runs, he flees. He will not um, cross the line. For Daniel and his friends, it was loyalty to their covenant, covenant Lord and refusal to give their loyalty, to bow down to the Babylonian king. They end up redirecting the king to worship the Lord as well. So they engage, but they don't stop there. They also pray. For, for the government, for the place that they find themselves. And Daniel, uh, is believed, gets his great concern for Nebuchadnezzar because he spends so much time on his knees in prayer, most likely in part for the king. Um, they seek the welfare of the city, like we find in Jeremiah 29, where they settle down, they, they build houses, they work for the welfare, uh, not just of their people, but for the culture at large, and end up making a huge impact. 
They were great students, model citizens, hardworking civil servants, and that were distinguished for their trustworthiness and their integrity. And they earn a living by this ordinary work. It's interesting when you read the New Testament, Apostle Paul in his letters, that Paul seems to have this assumption, this underlying assumption that not everybody, maybe even not a majority of the people that he ministers to as he plants churches, will pick up and leave their jobs and go be missionaries. He actually seems to imply the opposite, that a few will be called to be sent out as missionaries, but maybe the vast majority go back. Philippian jailer. Maybe he goes back to his post as a jailer and has a huge impact with a, now that he's living in light of a different story, the story of, of redemption and, and being a child of God, he goes back and it changes the way he runs the jail and treats prisoners. Maybe Lydia continues her textile business and, and now with a, a different frame of, of reference to say, this is how to conduct a textile business so that it honors God. And I, by the way, I'll take my proceeds and I'll support Paul in his ministry. Or maybe Erastus, who was some sort of a mayor of Corinth of sorts, and obviously uses his position to help Paul build the church in Corinth. So the point of it is this. God reigns, but a lot of his reign is through us just doing what we do, what we've been called to do in the public sphere, and him working in us. Part of that is engaging, and then there's the other side of it, There'll be some things we have to confront. We have to be different. We're called to be, uh, to be in the marketplace, but to do so as saints, to be holy, distinctive, to be salt and light as opposed to a world that is uh, always being more corrupt and dark. Um, one author said it this way, If a piece of meat goes rotten, it's no use blaming the meat. That's what happens when meat is left out on its own. The question to ask is, hey, where's the salt? Or if a house goes dark at night, it's no use blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, hey, where's the lamp? And then he draws this this correlation. If society becomes more and more corrupt and dark, it's no use blaming society. That's what fallen human nature does, left unchecked and unchallenged. The question to ask is, hey, where are the Christians? Where are the saints who will actually live as saints in the public square to be salt and light in their day-to-day, nine-to-five jobs? We are called to live those, those jobs, to work those jobs, and as we do so, to resist idolatry. Uh, every one of those figures that I just mentioned in the Old Testament at some point had to draw the line and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to honor God in this, but I will go no further here. I will take a stand here and confront culture where it is. And that's part of what it means to be salt and light, to preserve what is good and then to to push back as light does the darkness, to to enter in and shine the light of, of Christ into those places and push back the darkness. And part of that means suffering or at least the possibility, the risk, the true reality of the possibility of real suffering. For Joseph, for Daniel, for Esther, for many others that we could name, those temptations struck at them in at least three major places. It struck at them, number one, at, at their reputation. Um, think of Esther and the challenge that she struggled in the position that she was placed in in her story. And if you haven't read that story in a while, go back this afternoon and read it. Just refresh your memory of what all she went through. She had a huge risk 
to her reputation as she puts herself out there to be used to the Lord. Think of Joseph and uh, his position, being a Hebrew, needing to be loyal to his people, and yet being really second in command of all of Egypt. What would, number one, his people think, and what would the Egyptians think if they found out who he truly was? Um, and the same could be said of Daniel and his, his friends. But not only their reputation was on the line and, and, and at stake, they had to, in some sense, give up control. God, if I follow the right path, the path of integrity in my work day to day, rather than the way things tend to be going in the corrupt, uh, corruptness and the darkness of my job, will I be able to provide? It's outside of my control. When I trust you with this, all of a sudden I lose control of what's going to happen there. And then along with that is the idea of security. God, if, if I can't provide, then how am I going to be secure, have some security for my family and, and in this life? Every one of them, just as, as you do in your day-to-day life, struggle with those temptations for, um, to, to stand firm and to know that there's a possibility of real persecution for doing what's right, for following God's story rather than the story of the world. What do you do with this? Well, that's the third point. Not only does God reign, not only does He reign through us, but the way we can have strength to continue doing what God's called us to do is because He reigns in us as well. Not only reigns through us, but He reigns in us. And here's how I want to get at that. There's, there's three um, ways in the Old Testament that a person can be a redeemer. One is if somebody in my family is murdered, and it wasn't an accident, it was an out-and-out murder, then someone in my family can step up and be a redeemer, which would be an an avenger for that person's reputation in my family. Um, And all that that entails. That's that's one way to be a redeemer in the Old Testament. The second way to be a redeemer is if somebody in my family uh, got behind in their payments. Maybe they had a bad crop for the year, and they were in risk of, of not only losing their land, but having their family sold into slavery, then I, as a, as a redeemer, as a family member, could come and purchase, I would have first rights to purchase that land and basically set them free from the possibility of slavery and bondage and debt. I could redeem them. I could buy them back and set them free. Or the third way, and maybe the strangest, um, is that if a brother of mine um, dies and leaves his wife without a firstborn son, because in that culture, the firstborn son represented the inheritance, the security for that family. It was all passed to the firstborn. So if they didn't have a firstborn, then they were on their own. And who knows what would happen to them. Well, I, as a, a kinsman redeemer, could come and, and take that widow into my family and, and have a firstborn son through her to provide, to have the inheritance passed down to provide for that family. And it wasn't something that was done lightly. It was a huge responsibility for the kinsman redeemer to do. But to say, I'm taking you into my family, signifying I will provide for you security and give you an inheritance. I have worked in the church most of my life in and after college. Um, I've only worked in, quote-unquote, secular jobs for small stints of time. But enough to say this. You that do that, whether it's in the home with kids, uh, uh, as a stay-at-home mom, or in the workplace, you are the ones that are on the front line fighting the battle. 
And I know just from the little bit of me spending time in those positions that that is where the battle is. And it is hard because you're in a corrupt world. You're in a dark place and you're being called to be salt that preserves and light that pushes back that darkness and all that that entails. Well, the hope for us, the hope for you this morning is that Jesus is your redeemer. And just in the same way that your reputation is on the line and the Old Testament Redeemer would take care of that reputation, Jesus has died for you, has purchased you, and gives you a reputation as a son or daughter of the King. So you're free from living for a reputation in the workplace. You already have a reputation as a son or daughter of the King. Or you are worried about that that control and that provision. If I follow this right way, what will I do? Jesus says, hey, I'm your redeemer. I bought you back. I own you. And I promise I will provide for you. Trust me, rely on me, and, and then simply be faithful. Or maybe you're worried, hey, I've got this security. I've, I've, I've got to have this level of security for me and my family. He says, listen, I have owned you and adopted you as a son or as a daughter. I've taken you into my family and I've given you more inheritance than you can ever imagine through what my son has bought for you. So don't worry about that. Be faithful and watch the fruit that I'll bring from your many years of service. As you look back in whatever field uh, God has taken, you can look back and say, God, I don't know what all the details are, but I know I've been faithful in whatever way I can and you've honored that. I want to come to tell you this morning that I think that's God's secret rescue plan. As important as it is to raise up missionaries to send to the foreign field, as important as it is to have real, good, true preaching that's faithful to the Word of God and churches that that teach that and uphold it and administer the sacraments and church discipline and shepherding, as important as that is, Jesus cares as much about you in your day-to-day life in the workplace being faithful to Him and watching Him work through you to redeem this city. It's football season, so I'll end with a football illustration. I uh, had two coaches, two high school football coaches, in my time uh, in, at Irwin County High School. One was a former Canadian football uh, professional. Um, and he came in trying to institute a, a professional-style offense in Irwin County, Georgia's single-A class, class A football, high school football team. And he was super intense. And he would throw temper tantrums, tantrums during halftime and throw water over everybody. And we were scared to death to step onto the field. We hated going to practice. We were just scared. We're going to do something wrong. We're a slave of this taskmaster. And we won one game my junior year. And more people left the football team than joined the football team. Yeah, it was a dictatorship that was not fun. And then my senior year, a coach came, and oddly enough, his name was Coach New, and he had a totally different way of doing coaching. And he, because of his winsomeness, got people to come out for the team that, that had long since um, given that a, a pass. And he allowed us the freedom to, to enjoy the game of football again. And he put us in pl- places to succeed, and he, he focused on the fundamentals and, and built those guys up. And a couple of years after I graduated, those guys that were freshmen and sophomores were playing for the state championship. It's a totally different way of doing things. Let me tell you, the normal story in the world of work is that it's just a place to survive and get to the weekend. And sadly, the church hasn't done much better but to say... 
for some reason that, that yes, yeah, it doesn't matter that much. What really matters is what you do inside the church walls. Um, that's really what's for the Lord. And that is not the view of Scripture. The view of Scripture is that God is your master. He is your coach. He's the one that's, that's created it. You have the freedom to go and be creative and cultivate in the workplace, knowing that that matters to Him. And that He, ultimately, when all is said and done, will come and finish the work, will complete it, will redeem it, purge it of sin, and enjoy it. You'll be able to enjoy it with Him for eternity. My prayer for, for you is that you'll be able to go out with that encouragement this week uh, and maybe a new perspective on what God's called you to do. Let's pray. God, thank you. that You care about all aspects of our life, not just the ones that happen inside the church walls or in the privacy of uh, our bedrooms as we're spending time with you, but on a day-to-day basis in the workplace or as we're uh, raising kids and changing diapers. Whatever it is you've called us to, you care about that. And not only do you care about it, you are using it to accomplish your plan. As we are salt and light in those places, we see um, things preserved that are good. And darkness pushed back as your light shines. Would you do that? And as more of us get a vision for that and seek to apply that in our lives, we pray that we see visible fruit, not only individually, but as a city, as a nation. Um, Reawaken us to a heart for work that is based on your story, your scriptures. And uh, as you do that, bear fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.